Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the CIS podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. My name is Sean Atkinson, CISO at the Center for Internet Security. I'm joined today uh, by TJ Sayers and Aaron Zaleski. TJ, would you mind giving us uh, a brief bio uh, and your role here at CIS? Sure. Yeah. So my current role at CIS is the manager over the cyber threat intelligence team for the MS and EII SEC. Uh, my background largely comes from the DOD. Um, so I had formalized Intel training there on the enlisted and officer side. Um, and I actually got into the cyberspace through uh, my graduate studies. One of my former instructors was an employee here at CIS. Um, and we struck up a good professional friendship um, and brought me over as an intern. And I've been with the company since. Excellent. Aaron, how about you? So I am a senior incident responder here at the MSISAC, uh, responding to whatever malware infection, ransomware have you day to day, really keeping up to date with uh, current trends and happy to talk about them. I have a background in operations, actually. I was a systems and network administrator before I moved over into the cyberspace. I've been here for going on four years now and uh, yeah, happy to be here. Fantastic. Thank you, Aaron, TJ. One of the things we're going to talk about today is emerging and advancing threats. And I can think of no two better professionals here at CIS to talk about this. And so one of the perspectives that I want to review is, uh, you know, where we've been, but really where we're starting to see things go. So TJ, what are we seeing in terms of new techniques uh, in the wild? Sure. Great, Sean. Great question. Um, I think Aaron and I will both take a step at this, but I'll start us off. Um, so I think the first thing we wanted to highlight here was uh, recent changes we've seen in programming languages that malware is written in. Historically, most of the malware samples that we see out there are written in either C or C++. Um, but more recently, um, we've started seeing languages such as Rust and uh, Gulang used as well. Um, this is interesting from a couple perspectives, right? So you have on one hand, any type of manual analysis attempts um, that are done on these samples, um, responders are having to potentially learn a new language, get up to speed um, on those samples before they're actually able to complete their analysis and send their findings. But we're also seeing some of the detection tooling out there uh, is trying to keep up with these changes because, again, most of the malware sample we've seen in the past are C and C++, and these new languages are creating um, some limited obstacles for the detection tools that are out there. So they're trying to get spun up to be able to analyze these things um, and possibly detect them. Um, so that's one of the one of the things. And then, Aaron, do you want to talk about the, the containers uh, and LNK files that we've seen recently? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of onto your point also, you know, those new programming languages, Rust going, things that, you know, not typically seen before. Suddenly we're seeing things like, you know, ransomware binaries are written in you know, Rust. It's just not something that we'd seen before. It's definitely something interesting to know, uh, and it makes you know, analysis and detection more difficult because we got a lot of new languages to learn. Um, yeah, as far as containers, it's definitely something that's new due to Microsoft's recent change in 
blocking macros from being run uh, from uh, Excel spreadsheets or, or Word documents, whatever have you, uh, embedded macros in files from the internet. Um, so it's causing a shift in how threat actors are actually delivering these payloads. So, you know, traditionally what you'd have happen is a uh, threat actor would find your email, they would attach, you know, invoice dot, you know, XLSX and send it on over your way. Um, and you would open that up and macro would execute, you'd be infected. Uh, because of this recent change from Microsoft, they're having to put these in container files. So essentially, if you have them in a container file, like an ISO, uh, you are not getting it from the internet as far as the uh, as far as the documents concerned. Um, uh, the zone identifier will say that that is local to you because you did open it from a container. So the containers from the internet, but the file is local to your system. They're circumventing that protection that Microsoft has put in place, and now you're compromised if you open that document and run the macro. Um, so it's just an interesting technique that we're seeing circumventing some of these security procedures. And, you know, it's just a constant cat and mouse game between these, you know, uh, between the threat actors and, you know, security professionals trying to patch up uh, some of these known vulnerabilities that we've been seeing. So implement a new step, but still there as ever. So I'll just quickly tag on there to the end of what uh, Aaron was noting, um, just with an example that we've seen recently um, in the programming languages uh, shift. So Black Cat um, is a malware that we've recently seen um, spreading pretty quickly across the SLTT space. Um, it's also written in Rust, um, and we've seen uh, these threat actors using some pen testing tools, Brute Rotel for remote access, for example. Um, so we, we see live samples um, across membership. In fact, Aaron, I think you mentioned also that you were recently analyzing a sample of Black Cat. Um, so this is not something that's just generalized trends not affecting the SLTT space. This is indeed um, things we're observing in real time across SLTTs. Um, the other thing we wanted to quickly note on the techniques aspect um, was Cobalt Strike has been just dominant um, across SLTTs over the last year or more. Um, and we've recently seen um, some activity trying to transition away from Cobalt Strike. Um, as things become more prominent in the space, right, threat actors have to adjust. Um, they're trying to avoid detections and mitigations that are being put into place. And Cobalt Strike became such a namestay um, that it was getting, you know, members are getting pretty good at detecting uh, that activity. So we've also seen some shift over to Silver uh, Command and Control Framework. Um, so it's a, another open source um, uh, option that threat actors are able to leverage they gain access to victim networks. So given that in the adversary landscape, uh, Aaron, what's changed or, or how has the approach changed from the adversary in the last 12 months? Yeah, so it's interesting. One of the things that we've seen in the last year or so on the uh, incident response team is this kind of double extortion technique that we we hear a lot about now, but a year ago, it was, a, some, it was a thing that sometimes happened. We would see data being exfiltrated. It was kind of up in the air. You know, we'd have to do some more investigation to determine if that was a probable, uh, probable thing that happened on that network. But now we've gotten to the point where it's always happening. It's a fairly rare occurrence if we see that data had not been exfiltrated and is being threatened uh, for release to the to the public. Um, so we're seeing also a number of different ransomware actors popping up. It seems like there's 
never before been so many of them and they're all using these new techniques and frankly it's because it's effective getting that data out there is you know a big threat to some agencies and you know in that in tandem with losing their data is uh it's quite the threat to them so you know it works it's something that went from a sometimes happens to it's always happening uh we're just seeing a lot of dark web marketplaces popping up from a lot of different actors uh, that are causing havoc within the SLTT space and the you know the greater um, greater enterprise space. Um, TJ, do you have any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. One one thing I tag on to that would be we've also seen some pretty heavy strategic information gathering interest uh, across SLTTs, which kind of ties into the exfiltration of data. Um, so this is largely coming from state-sponsored or affiliated threat actors, um, and particularly across SLTTs. Um, I think a lot of people um, don't realize the information trove uh, that SLTTs are. Um, you think everything from, you know, grade school, DMV records, marriage records, financial records, healthcare information, um, pretty much anything you could want to know about someone, right, is going to be stored below the federal level, unless you're a federal employee and have a clearance and such. Um, so SLTTs really are a, a target-rich environment um, for state-affiliated actors, particularly um, places like China. Um, China has a lot of long-game strategies, and they're very, very interested in the espionage side of things. And if they're able to uh, build profiles on folks, right, through gathering information on SLTTs, um, gathering information on maybe software that they're using, supply chains they're leveraging, right? That gives China a strategic advantage down the line. And beyond the human element, right, it also gives them an advantage um, from the research and analysis and endeavors that SLTTs are undertaking all across from energy and and financial institutions, right? There's a lot of subsectors in SLTTs that would be interest to a state-affiliated or state-sponsored actor, right? So a lot of this exfiltration that we're seeing, um, oftentimes um, when an APT is involved, exfiltration is going to be one of the number one things that we're seeing because of that interest in the information that SLTTs have. Yeah, I definitely would agree. It seems like there's a a lot of people who don't kind of take into consideration the amount of data that is at the SLTT space and how big of an impact, you know, that double extortion technique really is to their, uh, well, to national security and uh, those environments. Uh, another thing that we're seeing uh, over on the CERT team is uh, VMDKs, the actual hard disks, um, are being targeted a lot more uh, than they used to be. Uh, Probably a year ago or so, I would say that it was very rare that we ever saw somebody actually going after um, virtual systems. Uh, they would get onto the virtual systems, and encrypt the contents of them. If you're like a ransomware actor, maybe you know place malware on those, maybe exfiltrate data from the systems themselves, but never targeting the actual uh, virtual machine images or their underlying hard disks. Um, we're seeing that an awful lot. As of recent, some ransomware actors seem to have uh, figured out that if you go in and say encrypt the hard disk of you know whatever systems you have running on Hyper-V or you know in your VMware infrastructure, um, that does a couple of things. First, the entirety of the system is inaccessible, so it makes sure that no file is left untouched. So you know 
they may go into an environment and encrypt X or Y file format, but it may miss a few things. But now if they're encrypting the hard disk, that is no longer an issue. Um, it's also causing us as forensics analysts on our team to lose a lot of the insight and a lot of the data that we usually gather from those systems. You can go in and encrypt a system, but a lot of the forensic evidence that would be available, such as event logs, are still going to be there for the most part. Uh, but when you start encrypting those hard disks and those you know, lower levels like that, you know, we lose a lot of the forensics evidence. Um, so it's a pretty disturbing trend uh, for us as analysts, and it's, you know, pretty problematic for the SLTT space because you're really losing all total access to the to those systems. Um, do you have any additions to that, TJ? So I had one more thing I wanted to throw out there. Um, it's a, a little higher level, but I think it's extremely relevant um, to our membership and really the, the broader community. Um, especially over the last couple of years, we've seen um, cyber insurance uh, companies crop up um, and start offering insurance policies to organizations. Um, and the unfortunate side of things when you're in the public space, right, taxpayer funded organizations, especially at the SLTT level, um, a lot of these organizations have to post their uh, revenue and budgets and things like that online so they're publicly accessible. That turns out to be a really um, unfortunate thing, especially when you have financially motivated cyber criminals interested in SLTTs, because what they can do is find um, policy references in those disclosures. They can look to see maybe if an SLTT has a certain insurance provider and some very simple deduction based on the numbers there. You know, you can pretty easily uh, narrow down the window of maybe how much that insurance policy would cover. So from a ransomware actor perspective, right, if you were to target such an organization, you could levy your ransomware request within the threshold of that policy. And then the likelihood of payout is much, much higher, right, because it falls within the suspected policy of that organization. There's a couple other offshoots we've seen of this, too. Um, so insurance providers are now increasing the premiums by which organizations are allowed to have policies. Um, they're increasing the standards, right? So you have to actually demonstrate all of these security controls and compliances that you have as an organization to even qualify for policies. And most recently, um, because we were talking about um, state-affiliated or state-sponsored actors, a lot of insurance providers are just completely opting out of coverage if it's uh, diagnosed or, or found to be a state-sponsored intrusion. So if said SLTT gets compromised by a Chinese-supported actor, um, some cyber insurance providers will not even cover the costs of that. Um, it's kind of like an exemption in the policy. Very interesting. I mean, thinking about how that has changed and the impact, it's, uh, it's interesting to see that the adversary is um, really starting to adapt to the current environment and augment their processes based on what they're seeing from you know, kind of the macroeconomic model uh, and really treating this as, uh, you know, these are business opportunities in a lot of cases, the way they're treated. Um, and then obviously, as we mentioned, um, there are some state sponsored and other elements um, that really then attribute to a, a level of sophistication that is uh, quite interesting, very interesting. So TJ, one of the other questions I've been thinking about is, um, you know, how is threat intelligence keeping up with the advancements that you've just been through? 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of answer this in a threefold response. Um, at least from our perspective as a CTI team, we're primarily responsible, right, for SLTT uh, organizations. Um, so we really try to cater to them. Um, there's varying maturity levels all across SLTTs. So I would say first um, is trying to map behaviors. Um, so we have worked a lot with CERT in the past, and we're increasingly uh, trying to envelop this into our process where whereby we're addressing the TTPs and behaviors of threat actors instead of just, um, you know, more trivial things like hash values and IP addresses and stuff like that. Um, I think everybody's familiar with the pyramid of pain, right? So if you can, uh, you can address the tactics, techniques and procedures, and maybe the tooling, like some of the things we've talked about earlier in the podcast, um, that's really tough and challenging for adversaries to augment and change. Um, so we've been trying to build in things like Mitre Attack into our products and also into advisories that are going out for patching notifications. Um, so just trying to get um, folks more in the mind of addressing TTPs and behaviors and not just uh, IOCs um, at kind of like a more trivial level. Um, the second thing is, is real-time sharing. So this will address more of the trivial uh, nature of attacks that we see. Um, but I always like to talk about a case study um, that was kind of a light bulb moment for me on the CTI team. It was actually with a fellow analyst of mine when back when I was a senior analyst. Um, we were just giving visuals of attacks that we've seen across SLTTs. Um, and there was a, a malware variant, Emotet, which has recently come back onto the horizon a bit. Um, but that was extremely prevalent years ago across SLTTs. And we started mapping out um, the attack pattern and the prevalence across SLTTs. And what we found was um, Emotet would affect one organization. And within the course of three to four days after that initial infection that we observed, you know, 10 plus other members would be impacted by the exact same campaign with the same infrastructure. And it was just a light bulb moment for the CTI team in particular that, hey, you know, this is an opportunity where we could be taking information specifically from this incident and pushing it out to the rest of members and basically inoculating them against this campaign, at least for this for this um, variant. Um, so what we did is we, we started the indicator sharing program and we share out indicators, um, everything from, you know, hash values all the way up to some behaviors with members um, from things we're seeing in real time across SLTTs. So um, unfortunate incident for one SLTT turns into a proactive defensive opportunity for the rest of SLTTs under the MSISEC and EIISEC membership base. Um, and then the third thing that I would touch on, and this is pretty Intel-centric, but it's just anticipatory analysis. Um, we've waffled back and forth with calling it anticipatory or predictive analysis, but we've landed on anticipatory because what we're really trying to do is provide analytic assessments on trends and things that we're observing across the SLTT threat landscape to try and help members in the industry anticipate things that are coming uh, in the future, right? So we want to help them prepare for mitigations, for defensive opportunities. So this is things like providing um, forward-looking assessments in our products, right, um, with likelihoods and estimative probabilities and confidence levels. Um, based on things we're seeing, it really requires that we have a very healthy baseline um, to evaluate anomalies and outliers against. Um, and when we can identify those outliers, we're able to get them out um, very quickly to members so that they can start preparing uh, for changes in the threat landscape. I think a good example is the things Aaron was elaborating on with the containers and the LNK files, 
right? That's a TTP change. And if we can get that out to members uh, as quickly as possible, something as simple as seeing an LNK file may raise the hairs on the back of an SLTT member based on one of our products. Whereas if we hadn't got that information out, it may just be, huh, what's this interesting? Let's open it or let's interact with it, right? And they don't realize it could be a malicious uh, attack that's underway. Excellent, TJ. That anticipatory analysis is really, really interesting. And it leads me into kind of then this next question of what practices should organizations do to prevent or mitigate the impact of these types of emerging threats? Well, one of the first things that I'm going to say about that is they should uh, reach out to TJ's team and get some real-time sharing from them. But um, outside of that, uh, the uh, one of the first things that I want to bring up is trying to map to some kind of controls and get benchmark hardening on your systems. So on the CERT team, uh, we typically go into an environment and find that there's no logging. The systems are using base level compliance or are straight out of the box logging and you know logs have rolled over. They're not logging the right things. It's not being centralized. They're you know maybe being updated once a month. And I really at high levels, what I'm trying to say is that there's not any real standards in place. Um, so you can take something like the CIS controls and map those to your environment and implement even the base standards of IGN-1, get some of the basic logging in place, get some of the basic hardening in place, and you would be above where most agencies that we go in to work on cases. Um, it's interesting because you hear about some of the very fundamentals that you can do within an environment of just having you know, retention policy and have, uh, you know, lockout policy on accounts and things like that. But at the end of the day, there's a startling amount of agencies that simply don't have that in place. And if you're listening to this and that's you, I would strongly encourage to look at that and put some kind of benchmarks, put some kind of uh, kind of policies and procedures in place to make sure that systems have some kind of base level compliance to a control like the CIS controls. Um, at the end of the day, the majority of the attacks that we see, malware, ransomware, whatever have you, um, are just not sophisticated. People always like to think about APT level hackers. They like to look at nation states. They like to look at, you know, the latest trends and the cool things that people are doing that, you know, seem impossible to stop. Um, but the majority of cases we have don't reach nearly that level. Uh, and it really could have been prevented from very basic controls that anybody could have implemented within your environment um, that don't even cost any money. You know, putting in things like principle of least privilege into your environment. Now, people hear that term and they immediately think of, hey, I should not let my uh, users be local admins on my machine, you know, limit domain admins within the environment. It goes farther than that, though. And so people usually think way too small when they hear uh, about the principle of least privilege. And you can do things like limiting user accounts, being able to execute macros on your local system. You know, do you need them to be able to run PowerShell scripts on the local system? Do you need them to be able to RDP to other systems? You probably don't need any of those things for 90% of your user base. 
But getting in through malicious documents, running PowerShell as your initial code execution, and then laterally moving within the environment to RDP are probably the most common techniques that we see within the environment. And you could turn those all off via GPOs. So, you know, you have the ability to really expand out what does principal least privilege mean to you and get into the nitty gritties of what are you allowing on your systems and what are you allowing uh, accounts to do. And you could really quickly limit some of these TTPs that people are using uh, when they are compromising a network. Um, one of the other things that I'll say is coming from an operations background, I would strongly urge everybody who's in a security department to work much more closely to your IT operations folks. You know, your systems admins maybe don't have the fanciest cybersecurity certs, but you're going to need them to get proper auditing, proper inventorying of systems, get network diagrams. Uh, it's surprisingly rare that I go into an incident on a network and they actually have an up-to-date network diagram. Um, it's, you know, more often than not, you'll find that an attacker has gotten into the network and has scoped out and really created a better diagram or understanding of the network than the staff supporting the network have. Um, so just having those basic things available to you helps when you have an incident, but also helps because you need to know how your network's set up, how it's segmented, what do you have on your network in order to properly mitigate threats on your system. You know, you can't stop or, you know, prevent a certain tactic if you don't know that that tactic could be used on your environment. If you don't know all these different networks that exist and you don't know what kind of software is potentially vulnerable and where people can move, you know, you won't be able to protect against that. So you need to have some level of insight into your environment. Um, that can go even broader to having centralized logging. It doesn't have to be anything crazy like a SIM. You don't have to have a store in place. Now, those are nice to have, and those would be great if you have the funding for them. But even something basic like just having, you know, an elk sack set up in your environment with, you know, your event logs being forwarded into some central solution. Um, you know, and then you can write some basic rules looking for, you know, basic things like, you know, new services being written. I mean, how often is a new service being registered, you know, across a lot of your servers? You know, there's some tuning that you have to do because there is some activity that's going to be in there. But for the most part, there's not a lot of unique stuff that's going to be, you know, in there. And that's another common technique that you could easily be looking for within your environment. That you could probably be doing for free or at little cost. Uh, so at least those are some of the, the main points that I would bring up, Sean. No, fantastic. Uh, I mean, that is a comprehensive assessment and really some good inputs into kind of this final discussion question that I have for us. And it's about continuous security assessment. And I think the premise is very good, but I think ultimately if you're, you know, running a set of standard processes, those need to be informed with both threat intelligence, but also the TTPs that we're seeing, you know, the advancement, we throw MITRE attack at this as well, but really starting to look at the, those elements to integrate them into such a program, because you know we've one of the things we've been doing uh, and that we've all discussed is you know the element of uh, red and blue teaming, but also combining those together in terms of a purple team exercise. Um, where do you feel that the emerging and and these advanced uh, threats uh, are coming from, and how can they be uh, utilized as part of a continuous security assessment program? I'd love to get your thoughts. 
So having a you know comprehensive security assessment program is going to be very important, especially if you have the manpower to bring in varying other teams to all be included on the security assessment. So we've done some of these tabletops in the past where you know we take a look at the security controls that you may have been implemented. You look at you know network diagrams, you look at you know privileges and whatnot, and you kind of walk through and think. You know, can X, Y, or Z happen in the environment? Would we be able to stop it? Would we be able to detect it? Um, and just walk through using threat intelligence, what kind of actors would target your agency? And could you stop them based on the TTPs that we know about them? Um, you know, we have some pretty good visibility, especially if you're reading the reports that, you know, TJ is putting out on varying groups um, to, you know, we have some pretty good visibility on what their actions are. Um, and then, you know, taking everything that we've talked about and really taking a look at, would you be able to do anything about those TTPs uh, is going to be crucial um, because, you know, it's almost like backups, you know, anybody who's been a systems administrator or, you know, backup admin knows that, you know, you can take backups, but you don't have backups until you've tested that they're actually, you know, viable and you could put them into place. It's kind of the same thing with a lot of these. You can implement CIS controls and that's, Excellent, and you definitely should. You also have to test them um, because you can't verify if they're, you know, actually working or in place until you kind of walk through some of these and think, you know, this actor does X and Y, you know, activity. Are these controls protecting us against that? Could they identify, you know, all that kind of thought process that you have to go through? Um, so it's important that you you kind of think about these and you know take all those into consideration, walk through those, you know, based on threat intelligence that you have. Absolutely, absolutely. TJ, your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, I concur with everything uh, Aaron mentioned. Um, I guess the only other things that I would add um, would be resourcing and staffing aside, right? Because this is indeed a resource-intensive and staffing-intensive exercise to kind of continue to do security assessments as the threat landscape's constantly evolving um, would just be to build in uh, to those security assessments, um, some mechanism that's adaptive. So not necessarily just creating a program where you run the same security assessment against the same applications or the same mechanisms in your organization, um, but have a team, um, you know, whether that's internal to the organization or external that's providing some type of threat intelligence to you um, and look to modify the security assessments as you go along. I think that's the key point here is that it is an effective program as long as it keeps up with changing TTPs. Um, so some of the things that we've talked about today, um, like the change in programming languages, the changes in certain um, uh, tools that are used across um, threat campaigns and such, um, these things have to be factored in into the security assessment so that you're actually addressing the things that threat actors are presently using. Um, one of the things I've recommended um, for um, organizations to potentially do is, as Aaron alluded to, try to get a baseline for maybe what's the most prominent groups or threats against your organization. So, you know, if you're a financial institution, um, maybe the most prominent threat against you is going to be completely financially motivated cyber criminals, right? Um, there's a lot of organizations, the MSI SAC included, who track financially motivated threat actors and can give a very good assessment on the toolings, the, the capabilities, the, um, you know, after, 
actions that they do with the information they might take. So like posting on, on forms, double extortion attempts, things like that, that you can kind of build into your program. Um, so really, again, high level, just keep it adaptive. Don't just put a program in place and run it repetitively, right? Just try to make it adaptive so that it's changing with the threat environment and you're building in some of the newer things that are out there. And then also the human element, obviously, I think a huge thing is building into the culture of the organization, a mindset of being suspicious, right? So don't just believe everything that comes in via email, um, you know, work with your organization on training. Excellent thoughts. Well, thank you, TJ, Aaron. This was uh, an excellent review and assessment of emerging threats. One of the things, um, you know, that is certainly apparent is that it's a, a continuous evolution. It's, you know, not a destination, but this journey that we're all on together. Uh, and I really appreciate your thoughts and insights. And also to the audience, thank you so much. We'll, we'll conclude for today. Uh, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. With thanks to Aaron and TJ. Uh, this is Sean Atkinson. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.